0: Good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life an educational offering by St Paul's United Methodist Church. I want to let you know that the online educational offering on the Wisdom Book Literature of Ecclesiastes is just got underway this past Wednesday night. I think you can go back and see a YouTube of it. I think it's uploaded on YouTube. And is that correct, Tim? It's on Ecclesiastes is on YouTube, but the live stream presentation is on wednesday night it lasts an hour uh from six to seven and uh, i was part of the first one because i'm part of the faculty but reading the book of ecclesiastes is really an interesting thing to do in this time so uh, i encourage you to do that and also we're beginning out out in-person outdoor worship today if you can believe that we'll
1: see who shows that
0: well it's It will be a metaphor. Uh, The fog will break right as the doxology is sung.
1: (laughs) And they all sang hallelujah. They
0: all sang (laughs) hallelujah. So um, tell us about In Between.
1: Yes, so if you haven't already tuned in, we are recording a podcast every week that's released on Thursday mornings. And can I get a little bit of drum roll? We finally... Meaning my husband finally helped me upload it to Spotify. So we're on Spotify, iTunes, and you can down, listen to it on our website as well.
0: And Instagram.
1: Instagram doesn't play podcasts, but you, I advertise it on Instagram. Right. Yeah.
0: So. so what is Spotify?
1: Spotify is another streaming, listening streaming system, program, okay. whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Service. <laughs> That's what the word I was looking oh, for. Oh, we so, didn't. So and what Bill is also looking for is the collection plate, which I can't find. um, (laughs) You can still make online contributions to Ordinary Life, which those contributions go towards great causes in Houston and beyond that help to alleviate stress in the poor. We are all kinds of (laughs) poor and underserved communities in Houston. We gave away about twenty-five thousand dollars last year, so thank you for that. When you go to our website and click donate. It'll take you to a page on St. Paul's website where you need to write ordinary life in the memo. We really appreciate those contributions and all of them get given away. So
0: I think we're also making kind of an emergency contribution. Yeah, yeah right we now. have some
1: funds to be able to do some COVID relief, which might include rent <clears throat> relief, food, um, med- medical care if people need it, so yeah.
0: Um, I don't think I'm violating any confidence to say that in staff meeting this past week, I learned that COVID is making its inroads into the St. Paul's congregation. So when you hear on the news that it's spreading and out of control, it's spreading and out of control.
1: It's definitely.
0: Have you gotten a shot?
1: I'm not anywhere close to the list, to the the first line of defense, if you will. Well. I will be one of the last people to receive it if
0: because you're so healthy
1: it's because i'm so healthy and young
0: and young <laughs> so i was at the top of the list i know sherry <laughs> and i have both had our first shots and we'll get our next ones next week so i want to thank as always tim leatherwood john watson olivia watson and william budge for this and i hope the time of your precious life that you have chosen to invest here has at least three payoffs for you that it deepens your awareness and understanding of who you are. And in that regard, uh, and in my own uh, discipline, I started yesterday rereading Jim Hollis's Living the Examined right. Life. Oh,
1: not it's a bad idea.
0: It's a good book to I read. I want to read to it read. in conjunction with the Ecclesiastes study.
1: Huh. For
0: every season. Yeah, the birds Yep. <laughs> yep. And I hope it deepens uh, your awareness and understanding of sacred mystery and that it strengthens all of our commitment to treat other people as if they were us because they are. I also hope that at the end of our time today, you are disturbed by joy. And I want you to know that no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. And that's not working. We have a brief video that is uh, by Paul Richards-Kwan, who is one of the clergy on the staff here, and that's going to be played for you right now. Hey, Ordinary Life.
2: My name is Paul Richards-Kwan. I'm one of the pastors at St. Paul's. I wanted to extend a special invitation uh, to a program next Sunday. We are having our second Missional cohorts for racial justice, race, and healthcare. In conjunction with our new nurse managed telemedicine clinic at Abraham Station that St. Paul's is starting, this is an opportunity uh, to learn about uh, the racial aspects of healthcare um, from a couple of different experts Dr. Jody Berger Cardoso and Dr. Quinnette Walton at the U of H Graduate School of Social Work. Uh, meet Dr. Kathleen Reeve. Uh, the director of that um, nurse managed telemedicine clinic at Abraham Station, uh, but I think this will be particularly interesting because uh, you in ordinary life are not merely hearers of the word; you're doers of it. And so this is not just an opportunity to hear from really uh, great scholars, but it's about to talk together. How do we make uh, healthcare a more just space? Um, that recognizes the inequalities that exist in our system. So uh, if you want to join, uh, please register at uh, the events page at stpaulshouston.org. If you scroll down, it's uh, one of the upcoming events. It's on January 31st at 2 p.m. I hope to see you there. All right. Have a great rest of your Sunday.
0: Thanks, y'all.
1: We're back. Yeah. We could not hear that video. So sorry for our we're catching up to you guys. (laughs) Um, Here we are.
0: So um, I want to begin today by saying let's talk about religion. Mm. And Holly and I have talked about uh, the fact that the paragraphs or blocks of material that we're dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount could all deserve weeks of study and discussion. But we've decided to deal with it. Maybe we'll come back. I don't know what we'll do. Most of you have heard me cite a passage from the works of Carl Jung. The passage has had a life-changing effect on me. I I mean that very seriously. And this is the passage. And by the way, Jung wrote these words. If you're not familiar with Jung's writings, uh, go to the Jung Center sometime and look. He wrote volumes and volumes of works. And uh, so this particular set of words appears several times in different ways in the writings of, of Jung. I can remember where I was in graduate school when I read this in his book, which I think the book is Man's Search*. Men in search of a, modern men in search of a soul. Couldn't use that language today, it's too sexist. But he didn't know better. We shouldn't.
1: I'm tired of that excuse. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, he's dead now, anyway.
0: Among all my patients in the second half of life, that is to say, over 35, there has not been one whose problem in the last resort was not that of finding a religious outlook on life. It is safe to say that every one of them fell ill because he had lost that which the living religions of every age have given their followers and none of them has really been healed who did not regain his religious outlook on life. Now he goes on to say that this of course has nothing whatsoever to do with a particular creed or membership in the church. And we've highlighted the phrase that we're interested in pursuing today, what's a living religion? Now, if you put into Google, is religion growing or declining in the world, you're going to get such a wide variety of answers, it's really hard to sort things out. Christian church attendance is decreasing in the United States. Among uh, charismatic Christians in the in Africa and in the in the South American countries, church attendance is increasing. Hmm. Uh, Church attendance has been steadily declining in Europe over the years, and then, of course, this question is not relevant in those countries where Christianity has never played a a major role. (coughs) Islam is the fastest religion, the fastest growing religion in the United States. There are a number of reasons given for these statistics, both why Islam is growing and uh, Pentecostal movements are growing and why more mainline Protestant and Catholic groups are declining in membership. Some say that it's because of the very things that Holly and I talk about in here evolutionary uh, cosmology and indeed after we uh, started talking about this after I came back from hearing Iliadelio and started talking about this material in class I had a growing number of people come to me and say that they could no longer attend the liturgy across the plaza in our church because it seemed irrelevant to them that we would talk about up-to-date scientific and cosmological matters in here and then go across the way and have a liturgy whose words are shaped largely by pre-Copernican worldview. Now, if this is the case, I think church attendance, which doesn't have anything to do with <clears throat> what people mean by what they, whether they're Christian or not, they see religion as irrelevant or dull or oppressive. And in some cases, they see religion as, as violent. So faith has been has been at the, at the hands of religion replaced by beliefs, rules, boring habit. And, and faith for many has become like an heirloom that you put in a museum and you go visit once a week to see how it's doing. But other than that it doesn't really have any relevance for your life. It's not a fountain of energizing truths that vitalize people. One of the phrases from the writings of amurku that I really like is he calls the kingdom of God an empowering and empowered community. So a religion, whatever it is, when it loses its emphasis on compassion and inclusion, it becomes meaningless. Now, you know without my belaboring the point that our own culture has become more closed-minded and close fisted And I think that, and I know this is painting with very, very broad stripes, but in American culture, there are two religious paths offered for people to follow. One is what I call the path of unstable correctness. Now, this is the path of those on the left. This is the path of liberalism. Uh, it can be the path of progressives because I even say and have said that I think one of the functions of living religion is to equip people to live with faith and not be terrified of uncertainty. So there is a kind of instability in the the religious views on, on the left. And then on the right, there is the position of what I call stable illusion. We've got the truth. It's immutable. It's unchangeable. It was given by the Holy Spirit to the apostles. They wrote it down, and we have it in a book, and it doesn't change. There's a third way, and I think it is to be seen in what Jung referred to as living religions, and it is the path of wisdom and understanding that should read, Upstanding, I guess that's all. Kind of, I didn't
1: spell check your stuff. Okay.
0: Oh, also, also, okay, and it invites us to move beyond the dualistic win lose of both liberal <clears throat> and and conservative positions. It's a religion that does not exclude, it does not expel. That's the temptation of conservatives. Nor does it demand a perfect solution, a perfect answer, or a solution to life's difficulties which is the temptation of liberalisms. Now, you know this, but I want to say it again. All religions, from the beginning of time until now, are humanly constructed containers to hold meaningful events and matters for the human communities that that create them. Humans have used the symbol system that they draw from their own culture to create these religions. Now, if you take this position, there's no orthodox religion. There's no orthodox expression of Christianity. Indeed, up until the time of Constantine, there were many different ways to be a follower of Jesus or to be part of a Christian community. For one reason, those people did not have the means of communication we have, but um, even even more important was the role that Constantine played in the organization of Christianity as we've come to know it today. Now, I believe that when we, when we embrace what we know about the social construction, not only of religion, but also of reality, and we come to an understanding that everybody has a religion of some sort, um, then having a religion can be valuable. It can even be fun. You you cannot have or grow in the values that you hear Holly and me talk about. Peace, love, joy, patience, and humility. You can't do that by yourself. You have to have, as we said last week, uh, a teacher... But even more than that, you have to have a community, a community that you participate in. And I would say that if you choose to have a religion, have one that has a self-critical element in it. Now, the Judaism that Jesus practiced had this. And I'm saying that if a religion leads a person to say, I have found the right religion, the only expression of that religion that's valid... That's not a living religion. That's not a good religion. Matter of fact, that's a a bad religion. So there are two things that have opened the door for us to talk about this today. Um, First is the passage in the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to deal with today. You know that we're taking this material as sort of a guide to help us deal with the issues that are being brought to light by the pandemic which we'll get in today, Uh, one of the biggest of those having to do with honesty and, and racial inequality or systemic racial injustice. So I want to read to you the passage that we're up to for today from Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Be especially careful when you're trying to be good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It may be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. When you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. You've seen them in action, I'm sure. Play actors, I call them, treating prayer meeting and street corners alike as a stage. Acting compassionate as long as someone is watching, playing to the crowd. They get applause, but that's all they get. When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks. Just do it quietly and unobtrusively. That's the way your God, who is con- who conceived you in love, working behind the scenes helps you out. So that's one of the things that's opened the door for us to talk about a living religion and living a new story. And the other thing, um, which we're not going to get into right this minute, is... Um, the rise of Christian nationalism in this country. Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Mm.
1: So, you know, I think you gave me the title of this book as we started, which is Richard Rohr's book on the Sermon of, on the Mount, Jesus' Plan for a New World. I haven't relied on it too much over the last month. I, I'll go and read what he has to say and sometimes include it. But in in this case, I, I think it's, it's interesting that he points out... Um, First of all, it continually points out that we need to remember that the whole Sermon on the Mount is a vision for a new world order, and it's about a society that starts with the periphery, so those on the edges, not the center. This new world order is also not just an external systemic change, but an internal change. I think it would require something like a daily spiritual practice and attention to um, to attention to your 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 acts as well as attention to your heart But this particular verse that we have is about performance how we externalize behaviors to get attention appreciation and approval the temptation then is to get trapped in persona which is um, Richard War writes and this is Young's logic really uh, that persona is a kind of mask that conceals the true nature of the individual it's easy to judge ourselves for wearing this mask, but the truth is we all wear it, and most of the time. It's, it, it can be useful. It helps us make decisions in the moment. It helps us uh, be who we need to be in the moment. It can also hide pieces of ourself. I'll quote our wise friend Bill here, who you have said before, my true self is not the one you see sitting before you. This is my teacher self, or in my case, maybe my Padawan self. You're the Jedi. It's the Jedi student, (laughs) you're the Jedi, I'm the Padawan. (laughs) I also have a mom self and a wife self and a student self and many other parts that I have to play in the world. Um, Bill once told me that the true self is deeper than all of this. Like if you strip away all of these things layer by layer, there's something deeper. And, And this is actually what Jung called the shadow. So before we get kind of dark and dreary about what the shadow is, the shadow is both positive and negative. It's just the lesser known, unexpressed aspect of the self. A positive shadow with someone who has low self-esteem or anxiety might be unaware of their self-worth and capabilities. So bringing that shadow forth would be their their work. Um, A negative shadow might be someone who identifies as calm and collected, but expresses passive aggressiveness or suppresses anger. So the work is getting in touch with that anger. Remember this, though, that the shadow also reveals the light. Our persona is wired um, in two primary ways, and that is by intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation is driven by the self-desire for self-improvement or altruism, doing good for others. Um, So it's a feeling inside the self that I want to do better and be better. The downside is that it can become intrinsic motivation can become extremely self-critical and therefore perpetually unfulfilled. Extrinsic motivation I think of dogs in this case, <laughs> um, who are very Pavlovian respond to the external reward, is based on a tangible external reward or, or punishment, but it can also be motivated by fear and can become codependent religion very often relies on extrinsic motivation or fear. If you do this or believe this, you will attain eternal life. If you don't do this, you will attain eternal health. <laughs> so there's so that too becomes very Pavlovian. When we look outside for validation, we tend to be in avoidance for of authentic relationship and communion. In other words, we're always looking for the other's approval to stay in relationship. So I think the question to ask ourselves as we grow up, work to embody a living religion in an adult faith is, am I doing or is what I am doing what I would be doing if no one were watching am i am i and am I, am I behaving in the same way by myself towards others as I would be in community? I turn to reading Howard Thurman, who is one of my favorite twentieth century mystics and Um, teachers. He was a mentor to Martin Luther King. Both of these men, Martin Luther King and Howard Thurman, were aware of this Jesus vision school of thought, this vision of a new world order. They embodied it. They taught it. They believed in a radical community, the beloved community. This community does swim in the matrix of diversity and inclusion, which is also just the reality of the universe. And I do think, you know, when I read Thurman and King, they definitely had a a more, what we might say, traditional or three-tiered vision of God. They very much talked about the afterlife and sort of um, prayed to God out there. But both of them were also extremely attentive to the work of the inner self, the work of the soul. They were intrinsically motivated to establish a more just world regardless of one's faith or, or religion. I've talked about Howard Thurman before, but to remind you, he was a black theologian in the early 1900s who moved from the South to San Francisco in 1944. He was a pacifist, and he was committed to doing the difficult work of establishing a a truly heartfelt community. His community was called the Church for the Fellowship of All People, and it was multiracial and multicultural and also interfaith. They built community. It it talks about how many meals they shared together, how much they broke bread, and just had talks, conversations about life, and how how do we live in a way that integrates my experience with your experience. I looked up the etymology of conversation in doing this work, and of course we have the root, which is con, or with, and versare, which is to turn, to turn with, or it became in the 14th century to keep company with. So we think of conversation so often like just talking. We talk to or with one another, but it's turning with, mm-hmm. keeping company with. I just love that.
0: And the, the company mm-hmm. uh, etymology of that word is with bread.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, pan. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Companion is someone that you eat with. Yeah.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. so it, it, so the, the the conversations that they involved themselves in but involved <clears throat> breaking bread and keeping company. When we have conversations from the heart, and I've heard you say this, Bill, that um, surrounding ourselves with friends with whom we can speak from the heart is one of life's gifts and something that we should cultivate in in order to sort of live in that way. But when we live from the heart and... We are also living among the hearts of others where we're sharing something sacred. I think the congregation that Thurman helped found was home to many who migrated west from the still segregated Jim Crow South. He knew this South well, he grew up in it. He knew what it was to be on the periphery. He knew what it was to be oppressed and the church he founded met people right there at those edges. It was home for many who had long been excluded from the center or the mainstream of society. Thurman wrote many books, one of which was called Meditations on the Heart. I showed it in the previous slide. And lo and behold, one of the chapters is called The Need for Approval, which speaks to this verse very well. When we keep looking outward for approval, for certainty, even for God, then we keep play-acting. He also says we can't escape the need for approval. It is wired in us at such an early age, so likely even from that first time that an infant gets a smile from the caregiver, the infant in some way wants to figure out how do I get that again? How do I get that smile again? So the infant begins to learn what gets me that feeling of warmth or connection. And of course, depending on the health and security of the relationship, For some, that smile comes easier than others. In some sense, the need for approval is a demand of the personality that helps it to establish um, self-respect or security in the world. And the trick, I think, as we get older, more mature, and more aware is learning how to get approval without betraying ourselves in the process. Can we show up as our most authentic selves and get approval for that, and work with others. Thurman writes this, There is a boundless hunger far within each one of us for an ultimate sponsorship or guarantor of ourself. It is only in such assurance can we experience authentic freedom. It is only in such assurance we are released from the tyranny of other minds.
0: So... We have said that <clears throat> one of the things that opened the door for us to talk about this living religion is the very passage in Matthew that we're dealing with, and and and, and you know if you go to the Gospels, you'll find this scene of Jesus giving this kind of advice uh, in many different places. He he had his harshest criticism. Reserved for those who were play actors. Hmm. For he called them hypocrites, people who were not as they seem. The second thing that has opened the door for us to talk about this, and I told Holly when we were working on this, I, I didn't want to put graphics up about this because I didn't want to give these people screen time. Hmm. Because they're getting a lot of it uh, everywhere, yeah, sure. but the other thing is Christian nationalism. Does it work if you have a finger stall on? <laughs> the
1: finger's out of batteries. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so one of the things that happened um, to the Christian movement under the happened under the Emperor Constantine, and it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't a sudden thing, and, and uh, I'm not going to go into the detail, but. Very early in the 4th century, and the scholars put the final date somewhere around 318, something like that, 319, Constantine um, co-opted the Christian movement, and as I said, up until then, and we now have, thanks to biblical archaeology and the people who've done such outstanding works on recovered texts, like Bart Ehrman and Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, uh, such an amazing uh, piece of evidence about this. Um, up until the time of Constantine, the Christian movement was very, very, very diverse. Um People went by foot from one place to another and they spread the message and people formed communities. that gave a bas- basic bare bones structure to the story. And because most of them were Jewish, they shaped a worship service that was the service of the word, which is the synagogue service. And then they put onto that a meal, the last, we call it the last supper, mm-hmm. the Eucharist. And th- even now, in many Christian worship services, you have the service broken down into the service of the Word and the service of the sacrament mm-hmm. in 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 one thing. So this this diverse movement kept growing, and no matter how they tried to stop it, they weren't able to, because these people in this empowering empowered community felt such joy, and, and they had nothing. They felt such joy and forgiveness and love and energy by coming together in the way that they understood Jesus to have instructed them that they kept growing. On the other side of the equation, you have Constantine who wants to unify the Roman Empire. And he knows that if he does this, he's going to have to get these Christian people together. And so it was not the church that called the first ecumenical council, or the second, or the third, or the fourth, but the first, was called by Constantine in Nicaea, which is uh, now, I mean, which was, it's got another name now, which I can't pronounce, Ilseq in Turkey. Um, And so Constantine called this council of the church leaders and told them that they... um, had to uh, get their act together Hmm. and come up with a statement that they all all agreed to about what it meant to be a Christian. And that's what gave birth over a several year period of time to what we call the Nicene Creed. Christians had to, and also the elected leadership of the church, and it, it was a very political process. Uh, positions were bought and sold just like in politics today and if you had a lot of money you could get to the top hmm. and if you didn't you, you didn't make it uh, so Rome had a lot of money Rome had a lot of power Yeah. so there's the beginning of the Catholic which means universal Roman means centered in Rome Roman Catholic Church mm-hmm. that's where that began to start right at that particular point.
1: It's what um, Jackie Lewis called where Jesus got empired.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and here's the sad thing, that up until the time of Constantine, Christians were very much like your Howard Thurman. Mm-hmm. They were pacifist and they were focused on community it would never cross the mind of a follower of Jesus up until the time of Constantine to pick up arms and go to war. Hmm. They would not do it. After that, it was a different story.
2: Right.
0: But the fighting didn't start from Christians outside. It was within the community. If you didn't sign on to the Nicene Creed, you weren't one of us. Yeah. And so Christians began to persecute Christians, mm-hmm. to kill them. And those who didn't get on with the program either had to figure out a way to get around it, as people did in the time of of the Crusades in Spain, for example. They converted to mm-hmm. be Christian, but right. didn't really. Mm-hmm. Um, or they fled. They went somewhere else. They went to the desert, and that gave us the birth of the desert fathers and mothers, mm-hmm. and... Documents like uh, the Gospel of Thomas and other things like that.
1: Hmm.
0: That was where we have the beginning of religious leaders beginning to collaborate with political leaders. Actually, it happened much earlier. It was even going on in Judaism. It's one of the things that Jesus criticized the Jews for was becoming puppets of the, uh, of the empire because Jews had turned against Jews. And, and most of the, quote, tax collectors that other Jews hated in the time of Jesus were Jews who were collecting taxes from Jews. That makes sense. They were the ones who knew the community and knew the people, but those tax collectors became um, very, very hated in the Jewish community. And and we could spend the whole morning going through a history of how the church has collaborated and gotten in bed with political interests. Probably the most glaring example for me was when John Calvin, great leader in Protestantism, was mayor of uh, Geneva... And one of his opponents, singly, I think was his name, came. They had a big argument about some theological point that that I can't think of. It shows its relevance. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, his opponent came to his church where Calvin was preaching on Sunday. And Calvin had him arrested and burned at the stake. Huh. It's a Christian thing to do. It
1: just seems so interesting to me that Christians, the early Christians, as you talk about it, was a community that lived on the periphery. Uh But they moved to the, then Christianity got co-opted by the center. And so Christianity ceased to be about the edges, ceased to be about the liberation of the poor and the dispossessed.
0: So, it, 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 indeed, and, and and what happened? You can go back and see is that the the church leaders adopted the names, the politics, even the dress
1: mm-hmm.
0: of the Romans,
1: right, right,
0: to make themselves more empired. More empired. Um, it's pretty sad. Now, what's been growing in this country? and it did not just start four years ago, is a very militant form, a mixture of religion and political ideology, and it's called Christian nationalism. On January the 6th, I saw pictures of a Christian flag being carried into the Capitol by one of the insurrectionists. On one of the clips, I saw someone carrying a Bible And I'm sure you can go and look at them. I have seen dozens of signs and t-shirts that put religion and politics together in a very tight way. One of the most glaring I saw was, Jesus is my savior on top and Trump is my president on bottom. Mm. So the question is, I didn't mean to do that. (laughs) Can we go back? Yep. Uh, I'll figure it out, Bill. All right. Here here, we go. Hit it one more time. (laughs) The question is, what does it mean to claim Christianity while committing violence on America's democracy? I wonder if any of those people were wearing what would Jesus do bracelets? Now, you know, the church I grew up in had an American flag in one corner of the sanctuary. And we had a Christian flag in the other corner. And if you've not seen a Christian flag, it's a white flag with a blue shield square on the corner and a cross in the middle of it. And I can remember that on certain occasions we stood and pledged allegiance to the flag Hmm. in worship services we certainly did it in in what we call vacation bible school at the time and then we bragged about separation of church and state <laughs> now as i said what what's been growing in this country is is this militant mix of christianity and and um politics now when challenged about this the leaders of this Christian nationalist movement simply say they are practicing freedom, religious freedom and freedom of speech. But I would like to point out to them that religious freedom means protecting the religious freedom of everyone and not just the powerful. So if you read the news reports of what some of the perpetrators said about their behavior uh, on that fateful Wednesday. Many of them claimed that they were acting in the name of God. They were carrying out God's will. This is God's plan. Um, God's going to come and rescue their movement and damn everybody else. So American terrorists used Christianity Mm -hmm. as a tool to make their terrorism acceptable. Now, Christian nationalism is not a living religion because it's exclusive and not an embracing of all people and all nations. We do not have an American flag in the sanctuary at St. Paul's. And the reason that we don't is to place a flag there implies that God favors one nation over another or that we give our loyalty to a nation rather than God. Uh, and, and that very idea has, is an idea that has been at the root of some of America's most reprehensible behavior. And, it, and, and, and we're dealing with it right now. Uh, after the murder of George Floyd we are having to face a lot of the consequences of our veiled religious aspirations being spread into our political ideologies. So I want to say that one of the, the marks of a living religion and one of the marks of people living a new story would be the mark of, of recognizing that what I just said has, a, has truth in it And that truth leads us to a great space of lament and and repentance. A deep lament that we as a country have embraced an ideology that has been so harmful to so many of God's children. Martin Luther King once said in a speech, And after I thought about including this, I thought, you know, we could do a whole talk on this.
1: Oh, my gosh, yeah.
0: Absolutely. He said in a speech, It may well be that we will have to repent in this generation, not merely the vitriolic works and violent acts of bad people, but the appalling silence and indifference people who said, who stand around and said, wait on time. Just wait. Be patient. He didn't say that. I added that. Somewhere we must come to see that human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the passionate work of dedicated individuals. And without this hard work, time becomes an awe of the primitive forces of social stagnation. So we must help time and realize that the time is always right to do right. Mm-hmm. That's a powerful paragraph.
1: He has so many still relevant writings. And, you know, he um, quoted a Unitarian minister and using the, the, the saying, the arc of time is long, but it bends towards justice. But he also crit- critiqued that and said, actually, time is neutral. And uh, time, time is going to bend depending on how we as people act, whether we bend it towards justice. So I think of Martin Luther King in a way like a time bender, and you know, kind of a, a sorcerer of you know of justice in a way. But he he also in that in that same vein criticized um, gradualism, and and criticized the right of the oppressor to name the timetable of liberation for the oppressed, and really said you know it's not up to the oppressor; it's up to those who are being oppressed to name their their tenets of liberation. One purpose of this part of the sermon serves to remind us that the most important spiritual work is within. It's not about our approval from the outside or from the empire. It's to observe ourselves when when our beliefs and worldviews are challenged. How are we acting? How are we showing up when we feel challenged? And are we, you know, again, it's like peeling away those layers to be our most authentic self. I have a friend who I says, we are everyone is 100% themselves all of the time <laughs> but it's about getting to know the deeper layers of the self so that we can show up in that way we can't sit inside permanently and keep on you know stay stay quiet and monastic and prayerful that's not the goal of a living religion either the very rhythm of life is in alternations you have your quiet time your meditation you go out in the world and live and living in the world as a person of faith needs a blend i think of monastic inward reflection that shows up as an outward commitment to love, justice, and compassion. We don't have to shout about this commitment to those things. We just need to be it. This is the essence of the verse is recalled earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, which is to be humble, to, be, to show up meekly, to show up in humility. I want to pause for a second because all of my life you, we've heard expressions like people of faith, Or, I'm a believer. Are you a believer? (laughs) You you know what I'm talking about. what? Exactly. (laughs) To to sort of identify, do you belong in this club or or do you belong outside of it? And I I think that language is a little bit harmful. People of faith, believers or non-believers. Because it assumes that faith is only Christianity or that belief is only in Christianity. When I think of people of faith. I want people of faith to be expanded to people who have faith, not only in humanity, but in a commitment to love, compassion, and justice. In the 200,000 year history of humans on earth, no one has ever actually found like an actual God um, under a rock. We we say we have, (laughs) Um, or drawn an accurate picture of what God looks like, but we tried to in making God the old white man with the flowing beard. But regardless, many of us like to feel really sure of God. So we created mythology and ritual around this idea. We've committed a lot of time to developing mythology and ritual. I love that humans have worked with symbology and story and abstraction throughout our existence. I think that's sort of the magical part of being human, is that we can both hold and imagine complexity, and we can illustrate it. Um, a friend of mine, and one of my oldest friends, lives in New Mexico, and sent me several photos the other day from his hike, in which it's called a, like a, a, an outdoor museum hike, and you're hiking among these petroglyphs. And these are some of the petroglyphs that are who knows how old. But some of them have animals you can see um, down in the, my lower, your lower right corner. Corn, you see the little sun in the upper corner. Um, rain, shamanic symbols others he said um, seem to show symbols of of men with hats on engaging in violent ambush the men with hats are perceived to be colonizers who Mm. um, committed violence against the native americans or native peoples it would seem that our capacity to try and make sense of and symbolize something other than the self something like the seasons something like um, the ritual of a hunt is as old as our ability to commit acts of violence and domination. Religion became, in some ways, a method of managing people rather than a way of liberation. I'm simplifying, of course, but I think the point here is that we've made religion too small. We've kept many of our, um, the, the creed, for example, old and stagnant, as opposed to asking how can it be renewed for today, a living religion evolves and changes and stays relevant. But instead of allowing that evolution, we wanted, we've wanted certainty and unchangeability. We've wanted things to stay certain. It's an authoritarian model of religion that leads to the kind of Christian nationalism that Bill is referring to. But this living religion, if we can embrace it, we, I want to say that Buddhist image of being in a river And the water is flowing around you. You stay steady, but the water is continually changing. No drop of water is ever the same. But those who attach themselves to this need for certainty become the persona of the soapbox preacher, the one who's convinced of his own rightness and handing out Bible verses and damning people left and right. And the often really dangerous behaviors that stem from this need for certainty are acts of violence, acts of exclusion, And the shadow of it is this discomfort with the unknown or with mystery, the things in us that we can't understand. The more outwardly right and certain we become, the more unaligned, ironically, with God and each other we become. For sure, when someone comes at me with a kind of holier-than-thou persona, I shut down. I, I just, I don't have space for it. It was said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount that humility and meekness are the makers, markers of God, not certainty and showmanship. When we speak or act from a place of certainty, we miss the beauty available in mystery. You know, one of the things that we try to do with our kids more and more, especially as they get older, um, is ask them back, well, what do you think? You know, just allow for the for this originality to come out instead of telling them always what we think or how they, we think they need to act. <laughs> it's, of course, a delicate balance in parenting. The other side of this, I think, is if we don't want to be motivated by fear is to become soothers or calmers of fear. This is tender and vulnerable and urgent. It's a calling that coaxes our best selves into the light, out of the shadows. Fear collapses the imagination, and it's suddenly we are not allowed to conceive of other possibilities. And when we are captured by fear, we act from this very primitive part of our brain, that reptilian part of our brain that was the first to evolve. And then we're much more likely to settle into an us versus them mentality.
0: Okay, so we're we're talking about uh, a living religion in the context of our current culture, and um, our national crises. And we're using the teachings of Jesus as our guide because we're in that tradition. Not the only one, but that's us. And, And I'm using the phrase that living tradition that comes to us from the living religion that comes to us from the works of Carl Jung so I want to offer you some other words from Carl Jung that you likely have not heard or encountered before. He wrote this in 1912. Now if you know what was going on mm-hmm. in the world in 1912, we were entering into a very perilous kind of time. A number of times some of Jung's most poignant writings come when we are in, on the cusp of entering or leaving a time of real identity crisis as a country.
1: Bill, was it around this time that he also um, sort of disappeared from the social world and, and committed himself to the Red Book? I think so. Yeah, I think so yeah. too. Yeah.
0: You'll have to t- talk about that mm-hmm. sometime. Mm-hmm. But he wrote these words. Should it happen that all traditions in the world were cut off with a single blow, the whole mythology and history of religion would start over again with the succeeding generation. I wish now that I had left time to really amplify on this Mm. and maybe we will come back to this. Um, Just a few years after he said these words, wrote these words, Christian fundamentalism, which led to Christian nationalism, just spewed forth. And Jung, with his emphasis on and belief in The Collective Unconscious held it that the history of human thought resided in the self and in the collective unconscious of the community. And he taught, and later Joseph Campbell demonstrated, that this wisdom passes from generation to generation in myths and stories and is always ready to reemerge. The uh, book of Ecclesiastes, which we're studying right now uh, in, in the Bible study, had as a predecessor the Elp- Epic of Gilgamesh. And as a matter of fact, it's kind of modeled on that epic, which is probably one of the oldest stories there is. Mm. Now, sometimes these religions emerge in wise and useful ways, and sometimes they don't. Why is that? Who decides? I in my own spiritual practice have started my annual rereading of Living an Examined Life by Jim Hollis. I started the day before yesterday. And it raises these very this was written before I started that, but it raises these very questions about how do we get the identity out of where out of which we live and and is it something that we choose and and we are handed so much um one of the reasons I rant so much about having a daily spiritual practice is that if we don't do our own work, we're going to fall into the clutches of the prevailing culture. So um, in, in 1939, after seeing what was coming in religious rigidity, Jung wrote, We fall captive to the herd animal if we cannot read the individual divinity mm. in our cells. Now, remember, all religions are human constructs using the symbol system and language of the culture in which the religion emerges. And as I said, sometimes these religions look pretty weird. (laughs) Christian nationalism would be right up there at the top. So people have asked me, um, over the last three or four months, but especially since January 6th, how come people believe this stuff? How come people believe these conspiracy theories and these weird things? Um, how come that somebody who calls themselves Christian would be willing to erect a, a, a gallus on the National capital steps with the intent of hanging Mike Pence? How's it? Oh, but it's a Christian thing to do. So... Um, the, the religion that encouraged somebody to wrap themselves up with explosives and walk into a crowded place is a bad religion. The religion that captures planes and flies them into buildings, bad religion. And in light of what we know about evolutionary cosmology, I'd even say that the religion that encourages its adherents to believe that their sacred scriptures are inspired from beyond and are to be taken literally, while all other religions' writings are poppycock. That's bad religion, too, not a living religion. So whether it's a religious belief or a political belief, there are people who adhere to some pretty weird beliefs, even when they're presented with the evidence. Why is that? I mentioned a couple of reasons last week, but those words were big. One of the reasons is that people are at different levels of emotional, moral, and intellectual development. Therefore, one of the principles of a living religion is a commitment to growth in these areas. We have the data, we have the information that we can use to help us transcend from one level of development to another. This is one of the fundamental area, uh, principles of ordinary life. Am I growing in these areas? And am I bringing this expansive, this expanded growing in, into life? Um, this is, this, this is a, a critically important thing. The insurrectionist who invaded the capital with Christian flags, Bibles, and a willingness to kill are arrested at late adolescent development. They're kids. They're adolescents. Um, They're not mature people in any sense of the world. By the way, it is possible to accept scholarship in every other area of life and reject it when it comes to to something like this. Uh, I'll tease that out in just a minute. But Jim Hollis in his uh, writing says that not to grow is like going through life wearing the clothes you wore in junior high. So people in this uh, stage of development use contorted logic to make conflicting evidence go away. Actually, researchers have found that exposing people to new and additional information just makes them more rigid and, and defensive. A real spiritual teacher, an authentic spiritual teacher, in my opinion, is one who's not sure. (laughs) And that's why I love the prayer of Thomas Burton that I've used in here before. Not the whole thing I'm going to read now, but I love this prayer of his. My Lord God, and this is one of the great Christian mystics of our time. He died not too long ago. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you, and I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. People in a living religion hope that they're going in the right direction, but they're not sure and they're open to change their mind. A second reason that people believe weird things is that they believe a falsehood. Last year, a pediatrician in Houston went viral for claiming that hydroxychloroquine could cure COVID-19. She also declared, among other things, that ovarian cysts are caused by sex with demons, that scientists are experimenting with alien DNA, and that reptilian humanoids are running the government. Now remember, this woman is a MD. Mm-hmm. She's smart in one area. A quarter of the US, a quarter of the United States citizens believe that the the media is li- that the government is lying to them about covid-19 and that it is definitely or probably true that the outbreak was intentionally planned these people believe a falsehood a third reason that people believe weird things is that they reject a truth i still read from time to time of somebody who says that the holocaust did not take place Two years ago, the Houston Chronicle ran a full two-page story on a woman who lives here who still believes the earth is flat, and she has quite a following. The earth is not flat, because if it were, cats sort would of have pushed stuff off of it by now.
1: <laughs> or we would have walked right off the edge. <laughs> so I
0: could go on and on with examples of people who believe a falsehood. Um, they're in the papers. Every day, they hold public offices. They preach from some of the pulpits of largest churches in this country. Believing weird things gives people comfort. You know, it would be nice if we humans were rational creatures, but we're not. We can hold beliefs that cause us to do incredible acts of kindness and compassion, but we can also be very brutal. This is why it's part important to be part of a of a living religion. I'm talking about being on a path that is one of peace, love, patience, and humility. A path that aids our growth in these things and both encourages and empowers us to bring these things in the world. So I can summarize what I've said in two sentences that I've used before. A dysfunctional society, yeah. a chaotic society produces dysfunctional people and dysfunctional people produce chaotic society. So that gives us an agenda to produce a community of empowerment yeah. and em- that empowers people, right? Yeah. Not a, ca- a community of chaos and to grow up, yeah. what we talked about last week.
1: Yeah. So we have a few more minutes of material you want to press on.
0: I'm done. May- no, you no but you're not.
1: No, me neither are you. You're closing this out, my friend. No,
0: um, I don't have to. <laughs> well, I don't have to. Um,
1: we're going to decide in the moment. Press on or wait? Press
0: on. Okay. We're going to press on, <laughs> floor manager.
1: <laughs> so okay. I have a, a little bit of a silly confession. I may or may not have bench watched a satirical telenovela called Jane the Virgin over the last few weeks. And I actually recommend it for completely entertainment value. It's funny and overly dramatic and really well done. But there's a plot line in which Jane's abuela, her grandmother, who's undocumented from Venezuela but lives in Miami, becomes an American citizen. And in her celebratory speech with her family, she draws attention to the fact that the motto of the United States used to be a pluribus unum, which translates to out of many One, what a great aspiration for a country to have. What a great aspiration for a community to have. Out of many, we are one. But it changed to In God We Trust during the time of the Red Scare when the US perceived communism to be the greatest threat to our freedom and to our right to believe in God. They thought that communists were godless. And I kind of can't help but think that the US government might have called Jesus a communist or a socialist If if the U.S. government was intact in the time of Jesus, the empire of Rome called Jesus a radical, right? And I also can't help but think that both God and Jesus might have preferred e pluribus unum, but I'm guessing they weren't consulted. I definitely prefer it as a motto. Through oneness, or though oneness is the truth of the universe, it's not how we've come to operate in our social worlds. I can't honestly say, however, that I feel super enthusiastic about these calls for unity um, across the board from government or from elected officials. I I don't know if I want to unify with um, those who are doing injustice. I don't know if I want to unify with those who are playing to white supremacy and righteousness. I don't see myself skipping hand in hand with them toward unity. I think that would be like linking arms with Constantine. I would, however, like to link arms with those who are in pursuit of love and justice and make space for those who are willing to do the hard work of changing to step in. Bell Hooks, one of my favorite scholars, she's a social critic and philosopher, wrote, If we remain unable to imagine a world where love can be recognized as a unifying principle that can lead us to seek and use power wisely, then we will remain wedded to a culture of domination that requires us to choose power over love. People like Martin Luther King and Thurman did not see the use in coddling those who sought power over love. I'm not sure if they believed white supremacists capable of changing, or at least that the resistance to change might far outweigh the time spent trying to convince them of a belief in inclusion. So what they remained committed to was an idea. And the idea was love. In our podcast this week, and this is where I think we could spend a lot of time, it, it goes back to the, the saying of Martin Luther King, the saying of Jung, um, which is what would it look like if we created a new world religion, just started over? And I think the key components would be a common origin story based in evolutionary cosmology, guided by the golden rule or reciprocity, rituals around grief and loss and change. I think lamentation is a huge part of moving forward. And then liberation theology is never about the sinner, but about the periphery. We said this week that, you know, we felt like some of our exploration this week was a little, or I felt like some of mine was meandering. And you said, well, we're meandering through this idea of of a new world order. We're meandering through what does the living religion and the living text look like today?
0: Well, let's. I would. I would add to what you just said about rituals of lamentation. I would also add rituals of celebration of Absolutely. birth and union yeah. and, you know, yeah. that our our elder traditions, our wisdom traditions. Okay, so I'm having this thought. Uh, We didn't use all our material. We'll run over. Um, I don't know what kind of response I'm going to get. We will get to this request. But if people have questions growing out of what we've done the last several weeks, uh, if they will text them or email them to us through the website, maybe we could just do a Sunday of just talking about this yeah. about the living religion because I want to I, I really think this is so critically important to talk about what a living religion is and 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 how we not only create it how we step into it and how we express it in such a way that it is attractive to other people and that they want to be part of the journey right that's so important mm-hmm. So um, it's called Living a New Story. And um, as as with all good stories, it's to be continued. (laughs) No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargoes, so watch your step. And we will see you here next week.